Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. When you're an athlete and you have a coach, the premise is not like, hey, you're broken. I'm going to heal you. I need to fix you. Something's wrong with you. Yeah. No, right? You make a team and the co the premise of the relationship is, you're good. I'm going to make you great. Yeah. Right. And so I love that idea of, you know, when you're working with a client, Hey, you're coming to me, you're a whole and you're an intact whole person, right? You're not broken. Uh -huh. You have all the tools in you to take care of yourself and to, to, you know, Take care of your life. I'm going to give you and help you develop the tools and the skills to take it to a higher level, uh -huh. right? To perform at a higher level. Yeah, it's very different. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of it's a different contract, you know, between two people. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Sasha, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh my gosh, thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I, funny enough, I was trying to figure out how I was introduced to you. I know that somebody wrote in, I don't know if it was a publicist or somebody, but they told me about your work. And when I went and read your about page, I think what got me was the fact that your work was rooted heavily in research. And I'm always, you know, interested in people who do uh, personal development work and, you know, self-improvement work that is, is largely based in uh, research. So, uh, we will get into all of that. But before we do that, I want to start with a question that I don't think I've ever asked anybody before to start the show. And that is, what was the very first way that you ever made money? Oh, my gosh. Um, the very first way I ever made money was, well, besides doing chores in my, I, my, my father tried to pay me to read when I was little. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, now we know from research that that is a deterrent, right? That that creates extrinsic motivation, which is demotivating. Um, so he shouldn't have done that. But I did, I found some like old, I found a hilarious promissory note from when I was in maybe third grade. And my dad was trying to bribe me by chapter. He would pay me by the chapter. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, the first way I actually real, received a paycheck was waitressing. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. What did you learn about people and human behavior that you feel impacted your life going forward from that job? Um, it's so interesting. I was a terrible waitress because <laughs> I really was. I was terrible because I would 
get sucked into certain tables and love and enjoy talking with them and just sort of, you know, I'm a psychologist. It's what I do. I talk to people all the time. Mm -hmm. So I would have one table that I loved and then completely neglect the other tables. So that made me a decidedly bad waitress, but I enjoyed it a lot because I would, because I got to know people who were traveling. I I was living in actually in Telluride, Colorado. as a ski bum. Um, so I, I would get to meet all these interesting people that had come, you know, were coming through town. Uh, and I loved that part of it. But I'm sure there were plenty of people who were very frustrated that their meals were taking a long time to get to them. <laughs> well, I mean, it sounds to me like you were craving connection with the people that you were serving. Yeah, I mean, I think that I've always been interested in social science from, the, from day one. I've always been interested in... Um, subcultures and why people do what they do and trying to understand what motivates and what you know what motivates and drives people has always been something I think is is interested me from mm. from the beginning. Mm. Okay, I couldn't let the ski bum thing go because uh, I'm an avid surfer, so I get uh-huh. this like just absolute obsession with anything that results in that much flow. And it's so bizarre that you brought that up because I was just going back through Stephen Kotler's uh, book, Rise of Superman, this morning to, to kind of see where I could make alterations to my, my day based on some of the things that I had heard him say in an interview. Uh, how long have you been skiing? Oh my gosh, I've been skiing since I can't, I, I don't even remember learning how to ski, but my brother is a, is a surf, I call my brother Chandler, because you know, from North Shore, the movie North Shore, mm-hmm. the soul surfer, I yeah. don't know, <laughs> it was an 80s cult classic. Totally. Um, but uh, my, I come from a skiing family, and we, I just started skiing, I think I was probably three when I first started to ski, and it's just been a huge part of my life, it's a huge part of my husband and my life together and our kids too. They learned, I think both my kids started skiing when they were about two. So yeah. with the little harness, you know, yeah. bringing them down the hill. So, you know, one of the things that I've always wondered about as somebody who learned both to snowboard and surf as uh, an adult at the age of 30, when you're a kid, do you have the sort of understanding of the fact that there's this incredibly spiritual and deep side to it uh, that causes this flow? Or is it just something that you see as fun? Like, do you have any sense for why it's so addictive and, and it hooks you so much when you're that young? And how has it changed with time? And what have you learned from skiing that you have applied in other areas of your life? Which I realize is like three questions in one. Yeah, I gosh, they're so, these questions are great. Um, I hadn't thought about it in this way. I think the reason I loved to ski so much as a kid was that skiing represented such freedom to me. You know, you go on the mountain and it's this altered universe where your parents basically say, see you later, you know, here's some lunch money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Here's like, what is like five bucks back then, but here's money to get lunch. And then off you go and you're skiing with friends or skiing in ski school, which is I mean, looking back, those instructors were probably like 22 years old, right? It's fairly unsupervised. Uh-huh. And uh, and th- I never had that in any other area of my life. It was just complete freedom to do whatever I wanted all over this huge mountain. It was just such an incredible thing. And I played sports pretty competitively as a child. So, it was the one sport I did just for the love of it, uh-huh. um, just for the fun. And I... I, I think there were, I mean, I have so many thoughts about um, the, the, the developmental psychologist in me. I have a lot of thoughts about what we're doing with kids in sports nowadays yeah. that I think is not great. But, you know, we professionalize sports 
now at such an early age. And that was even happening in the, you know, in the eighties and the late seventies, early eighties too. And, um, but skiing was that one thing that I got to do just for the intrinsic value of it mm-hmm. because it was fun. And it was, you know, you're the feeling of your body going down so fast on the mountain, you, especially when you learn to ski before you even have any fear, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, it, it's like walking to you. It feels like just part of who you are. That's just a great experience. And I think, unfortunately, there's two, there's not enough sport is, that's exactly what it is, right? It's play. And so, and we know so much about positive emotion now um, about why human beings have positive emotion from an evolutionary perspective. It, you know, it slows down what we call the thought action repertoire. So between the thought and the action, there's an emotion and positive emotions slow that down. So it's where you find, you know, it's, um, it's where you find creativity and, um, and, and broader perspective. And so these activities that help us get into that positive space are so important. Mm -hmm. And often I think when we're playing sports with like a very different mentality around, um, you know, if it's sort of pressured and it's, it doesn't, it, it doesn't have the same effect, Yeah, which is why I think. People get so obsessed with, I mean, surfing, I think is surfing and skiing seem to be the two sort of lifestyle sports. Uh-huh. Well, it, it's interesting because my, you know, I always tell people the reason I, I gravitated towards these sports is because that if my performance sucks on any individual day, it doesn't affect the performance of everybody else that's with me. Uh, whereas on a basketball court where I was the most improved player on my seventh grade basketball team, which really just means you're the shittiest player on the team. <laughs> Uh, I noticed that. Okay, hey now, not in the grit era. You can't say that. <laughs> uh, who knows? May- maybe knowing everything I do about human performance now, I might have become a pretty decent basketball player. Uh, but that was what appealed to me so much was the fact that that you know the, there was a, a component of it that there was no sort of bar that had to be met in which your performance was measured. The only person that you're competing against on a on a regular basis was yourself. Uh, but I'd imagine also that skiing, you, know, you mentioned that this notion of um, skiing before fear had developed. So I had to ask about mm-hmm. that and um, how that is different as adults and what we can do to navigate taking on incredible challenges, um, you know, when fear has already developed in, in certain areas of our lives. Yeah, I mean, I, this is, I, it's really interesting because I just have no fear with skiing whatsoever. And then I've had friends that have learned later on in life and you can, and you watch them. And the only difference between a child learning how to ski and an adult learning how to ski, I mean, there is developmental things that change. Like once we go through puberty, it becomes more difficult for us to learn these new skills just becomes technically harder. But the, but the main, you know, psychological difference is an adult is scared. <laughs> a kid isn't scared, right? His kid is falling and getting up and trying it again and, you know, may get a little bit frustrated, but it's just, it, they're, they're not registering like I am about to die. Mm. An adult is having that thought, right? Yeah. Um, and like, this is a bad idea. I'm going to break a leg. Like they have an entire narrative in their head <laughs> that is creating a lot of fear, which also probably makes it less fun. Uh So, you know, when we're learning something new, you have to really manage your thinking because your thinking is what's creating the emotion of fear. Uh 
Right. Well, so, so that's like that. That's like when the the reason to learn something new as an adult on some level is to go through the process of having to work through the you know the the thoughts that are creating these emotions mm-hmm. that hold us back. Yeah. So I, I have to ask you about a, a certain experience that I had based on this. So it, it was interesting because I had Kristen Ulmer, who's the world's best uh, extreme uh, you know, female skier here as a guest. Oh, wow. And uh, awesome. we were talking about her new book, The Art of Fear. And in our conversation, I, I told her, I said, hey, I'm actually going to be in your neck of the woods next week for a snowboarding trip. Uh, I, I was going to Utah. So I, I got to you know uh, spend about a week at uh, Park City. And one of the days we went to Snowbird. Now, I don't know if you've ever skied Snowbird. Uh but the places like Mount Doom, especially on a day when it's cloudy and, yeah, and grim. Snowbird and Alta are amazing mountains. They really are. And I remember, and I've been snowboarding for probably three years at this point. I'd hit my first black diamonds earlier in the year. And I got up to the top of the mountain at Snowbird, even just like looking up, you know, I was looking at the gondola that day. It was cold. It was windy. The visibility was really bad. Uh, and I just had like a temporary meltdown. Like I just freaked out. And I couldn't push myself up to even stand up on a snowboard, despite the fact that I was doing 35 mile an hour runs the day before. Mm -hmm. What happens in those moments? Like what in the world causes somebody to be that paralyzed when they clearly have had experience with something like this? Like it wasn't, it didn't seem rational to me to be that scared. Oh, yeah. I mean, let me disabuse you of the idea that human beings are rational. <laughs> we, are, we are not rational. I mean, um, yeah, the, the only thing that's happening is you're having thoughts. Like, you're having a thought that created that fear, and it can be extremely powerful. The the circumstance is essentially the same, right? The the What you were doing was the same. You were skiing the day before, you're skiing today. Mm-hmm. But then all of a sudden, you had a flood of you know, you probably had a flood of thoughts. I don't know what they were, but that they were creating paralysis. I can tell you what triggered it. Oh, yeah. I think I, I know. There was a sign on the gondola um, about speeds. It was, it was at the bottom of the lift. Uh, mm-hmm. As people are getting in line for the first, you know, lift, first chair of the day, there was a sign that said it was about, man, you know, controlling your speed. And um, it was about a guy who was going something like 60 miles an hour and it hit a five-year-old girl and killed her. And I was like, of all the places you could put this sign seriously? (laughs) Okay. So this is such a good example of what I do. I mean, this is a perfect example of how our brain works. And so, you know, there was a really brilliant psychologist named Albert Ellis and was one of the fathers of cognitive behavioral therapy. And he had a model, which he called the ABC model. So there's an activating event, which triggers a belief and the belief creates a consequence. And I... I use a model like this with my clients. It's I've you know augmented this model, but this premise is the same, um, which is there was an activating event, right? The activating event was you read this sign, mm-hmm. right, and it triggered this thought. Oh, like I could actually kill someone <laughs> by doing this, right? If I'm not in control, I might kill somebody, which is way the stakes are now so much higher. Mm-hmm. Right, but the truth is, nothing has really changed about the external, the, the the event or the sort of you know the externalities of it are not nothing changed. You were skiing the same mountain the day before, mm-hmm. and that event with the skier and the girl was had happened, had already happened. Mm-hmm. 
right? Yeah. But you didn't have a thought about it. So there was no fear. Yeah. Right? The next day you read something and now you have a new thought. And the new thought is, you know, oh, you know, if I if I ski too fast, I could I could seriously injure myself and I could harm somebody else, which is, you know, now that as I said, the stakes are the stakes are raised, which so it was those the new thoughts which created the fear, right? Uh-huh. Generated fear. Yeah. So it's really about, but if you are in that situation and you're like, I'm now at the top of the hill and I'm completely paralyzed and I can't get down, uh-huh. right? The the trick is you have to, you're feeling fear. You have to in the moment. It's hard to do it, right? Yeah. Because right? fear is can really take over your body physiologically, but you have to pause and asking yourself, what am I thinking? that's creating this fear, uh-huh. right? And being able to question your, like we have to question our thinking. We assume our thinking is rational, but often it's not rational at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I had this just flurry of, of thoughts that suddenly, you know, flooded my mind and, and one, I couldn't get, you know, I, I literally couldn't push myself up even though I'd done it a hundred times the day before. Uh, mm-hmm. and then there are those traverses that you have to get, which are a pain in the ass on a snowboard, because if you lose your speed, oh, you don't yeah. make it down. And if you go, and I kept thinking, okay, well, this traverse is super narrow. If I fall over the edge, I'm going to fall off the mountain and die. Uh, yep. and luckily some old guy kind of just guided me down to a point where there was a bit more wide terrain. And, and from there, I kind of got back into my groove. But I mean, it took almost half a day to get back to normal. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, it's a, our emotions are incredibly powerful. But I think one, what we forget often is we just assume that our emotions are sort of, they're facts. Like, they're, they're just, they're truths about how, you know, our feelings are, are facts. But our feelings are derivative of our thoughts, mm-hmm. almost always. Yeah. I mean, you know. This is the, some, all models are wrong. Some models are useful. Uh-huh. This, I think my, this cognitive model is very useful, but there are instances I, that are, it's not necessarily doesn't work like that where yeah. perhaps the, you know, the, you can put a pencil in between your teeth and turn up the corners of your mouth and you, and then there's a, you know, they've done studies to show that that is, can significantly improve uh, mood. Right. And so, People can, you can physically act your way into feeling better, but more often than not, I would say, you know, most of the time our emotions are derivative of our, of our thoughts. And so learning how to manage those thoughts is absolutely essential. Hmm. Uh, one other question about this, you know, the, the, about the skiing piece, uh, which is, has been really interesting to me, and I'm trying to figure out why this happens. And, and maybe as a lifelong skier, you could, you could, and a psychologist, you could shed some light on this. Why is it that you get this sort of level of motivation from action sports that? bleeds into other areas of your life. And, and I'll, I'll give you an example. So prior to surfing, I was incredibly undisciplined, um, couldn't finish most of the things that I've started, um, very often picked up new hobbies and, and quit within a, a very short amount of time. And over the last 10 years, um, as, as, you know, as a byproduct of becoming a surfer, I, I'm very convinced that this is the case. I also became a prolific writer, wrote multiple books, developed the habit of writing a thousand words a day, built on mistakeable creative. And I've always wondered if the the journey, the fact that these two journeys are parallel is just a coincidence. And since you're a psychologist who is a lifelong skier, I, I, I'm really wondering, mm-hmm. you know, if you can shed some light on this for me. Well, I mean, I I think I wonder, and again, like this is not um, 
you know, the, this, I'm just my conjecture, but, but I would really imagine that for you, surfing really brought into a state of flow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No I mean, I've heard this, my, as I said, my older brother's a surfer. He's just, it, it creates this, I, I think the flow state that people get from surfing is so addictive. And so, and it's cause it's so visceral. It's hard to get yourself into a state of flow, right? I mean, it's, it's like this elusive for a lot of athletes, it's an elusive state. So if you're, if, if that's, if, if surfing was really helping you get into that place in sports psychology, we call this, you know, in the zone, right? You're so, um, where the level of challenge and your skill level are fairly evenly matched. So you're in this, it's a way of aligning and, um, organizing your brain, right? So when we're psychic, um, entropy is when our brain is all over the place and it doesn't feel very good. When our brain is, you know, and our mind is kind of aligned to one end, to one focus, it feels great, Mm -hmm. but it actually doesn't feel like anything, which is really strange. It's this strange state where you don't actually feel any emotion. You're not even conscious of feeling anything. And it's in retrospect where you look back and you're like, oh, that was amazing. Mm. That felt awesome. Or that was such a great experience. But in the moment, you're so focused on what you're doing that you're not actually conscious of, of your emotional state. And I think more than any other sport, surfing seems to be the one that gets you into that, you know, because you're fight, you're dealing with some pretty serious natural elements with mm-hmm. water, right? Yeah. So you have to be, you ha- it requires a level of focus that maybe other sports don't. And so by learning to surf, you know, you are inducing this state of flow, and perhaps that had a spill. Like once you realize that you could get yourself into that state, you know, perhaps it's like craving more of that in every other area. Like writing is definitely a flow activity uh, for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. Interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to some of this because I, I still have a lot of questions about this, but I want to talk about how you get from sort of, you know, waitress slash ski bum to developmental psychologist to how in the world did you get to this point? Like what were the significant inflection points and, and what led you down this path? Yeah, that is a, that is a good question. Um, I, so I had taken a year off between high school and college. Um, and I had gotten in early to school, um, early action. So I had applied early to Harvard. It was my, my opic focus was to get into Harvard. It's what I wanted for the time. I was a little kid. I know that sounds so weird, but I was that, I was that kid. I really wanted to go to Harvard. And when I got in, um, I sort of realized I didn't know what I wanted, what I cared about, what I was actually interested in. My whole life had been focused on the goal and not the journey, not the journey. Um, and once I got the goal, I sort of didn't know what to do with myself. Uh, so I took a year off and I was playing, uh, I was a squash player. So I was training and playing squash. And then I took some time off to go skiing and live in Telluride. But when I got to college, you know, here I was like, I, in my, for my version of my life, like this was the, this was the great pinnacle, like the great achievement. And when I arrived in Cambridge, it was such a letdown, you know, cause I didn't really, it didn't solve any problems. It didn't really make my life any better. Right. It was just like, I checked the box. I did it. And I had assumed my whole life that getting, you know, achieving that feat would then make me feel great, but it didn't really work. 
right? And now, I mean, now I know why, <laughs> the way that our brains work, mm-hmm. right? Um, but that was so disappointing for me to be, you know, here I was in this great, you know, academic institution, and I was just really not that happy. And it was sort of this protracted, you know, face plant um, <laughs> that was college. And I think when I graduated from college, I actually vowed I would never go back to school. It's his famous last words because I ended up going back to a lot more school <laughs> after <laughs> I graduated. Um, but I, w- I became fascinated with we, what, okay, so if the externalities aren't going to solve the problem here, right? Like if I'm going to achieve all of these goals and they're not going to make me feel better, yeah. then what is? Like, what is the point? Um, and I became so interested in what does it mean to live a good life, a happy life? What does it mean to thrive? What does it mean to, um, you know, how do you put your head on your pillow and and be proud of your day and feel like you get lived a good day? Then I, you know, I became completely obsessed with understanding that uh-huh. because it, I, I felt so confused and lost and a mess when I was in college. What, what did you do after college? Um, I went, I worked in, well, so in college, I had wanted to be, I was a social anthropology uh, major, we call it a concentration, but yeah, major in college. And I, so this, the subculture that I, I was studying was Christian motorcycle ministries. So I traveled around the what, you know, U.S. and the West, like the in Colorado and Texas and all these and going to biker rallies and did was filming um you know they were ex-outlaw bikers that had had a massive conversion and now were ministering to people at these big rallies like in Sturgis and South Dakota mm-hmm. um and so I, I at that point I thought, well, I really want to be a documentary filmmaker. That's what I want to do. So when I left college, I worked in various, um, I worked in production companies and and did a lot of uh, film production before. And and then just by total dumb luck, really, um, I had read Marty Seligman's book, who's at Penn, who's the the father of positive psychology. And I'd read his book, Authentic Happiness. Um, And at that point, after college, I'd hired a coach, which by the way, like it was 2001. Nobody even knew what a coach was. (laughs) It was like the only coaches that were, that anyone, you know, even thought of were sports coaches. Uh So the idea of a life coach was totally bizarre. Um, And, but I loved working with her because I'd been an athlete. So this idea of, you know, instead of kind of endless therapy and endless navel gazing and kind of trying to understand the antecedents, the sort of how I'd gotten to where I was, um, I loved this idea that we were going to act, it was more future oriented, that I could just take myself as I was in the moment and move forward, right? I didn't have to sort of, you know, reconcile and fix my past. I could just take where I was today and chart the course. And I don't know that entire pair like that idea was game changing for me. Cause I thought like, yeah, this is what I, this is really what's going to work for me. Cause I had been in, you know, in therapy and, um, 
you know, and I, I just sort of felt like I was rehashing over and over again, this, you know, the stories of my past, but not really getting anywhere. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, <clears throat> I'm glad you brought up the coach thing. And then you tied it to, to the fact that you were an athlete because. I, I oh realized- yeah. She had, so this, my coach is the one who'd recommended that I read authentic happiness. And mm-hmm. when I read it, I, it was this idea that like, you know, you, you don't have to roll around it. Like the idea that um, in psychology, right. That we're rolling around in our muck to get clean mm-hmm. it doesn't actually make sense and that and and this marty seligman was the first psychologist that i had read who was interested in okay you know we, psychology has been traditionally set up to get you from you know the negative end of the spectrum to, to the zero point right to cured okay healed right mm-hmm. but there was nothing that was about oh, well how do you get from zero to the positive end of the spectrum, right? Yeah. What does that even look like? That was completely new at that time. Um, and that really resonated with me. And I, and I think, you know, I really took to it and I, by, and I was saying the dumb luck was that he happened to be starting a master's program. Um, and, I just immediately thought like, okay, I, I applied for it in secret <laughs> because I, I couldn't bear to tell my family and friends that I was actually going back on my word that I was never going back to school. Well, and don't I, worry. I, I actually told people <laughs> that I would never do anything related to the internet for my job post-business school. <laughs> Famous last words. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I'm really glad you brought up uh, the, the the fact that you you understood the value of a coach from having been an athlete because I, I you know I, I meant to ask you about coaches that you had had in high school uh, mm-hmm. from being an athlete and, and the impact that they had on you and what lessons you learned uh, about coaching that um, sort of impacted your perspective from being an athlete. Well, I think that the, I think coaching in the in terms of our psychological health. I deeply believe in it. And I mean, we can go into a whole conversation about like the, how the field, you know, could be professionalized and all of that. But I, I think that the idea of coaching to me is a very powerful one because, you know, at any given moment in the United States, I think the statistic is something like 17% of the U S population. It has clinical psychological disorder. Like that's a pretty high number. That's, you know, close to two out of 10 people Mm -hmm. are suffering from some clinical psychological issue that still leaves eight out of 10 people as, you know, what I would call the walking wounded, right. Functional, um, taking care of the sort of daily lives, living, living a functional life, but are still dealing with the condition that all of us have, which is having a human brain. And there's not a psychology, like there hadn't been a psychology that was, addressing the needs of that of the 80%. Mm-hmm. So the, I, the sort of what I got out of coaching, like when I was saying, you know, I really took to coaching because I had been an athlete was when you're an athlete and you have a coach, the premise is not like, Hey, you're broken. I'm going to heal you. I need to fix you. Something's wrong with you. Yeah. No. Right. You make a team and the co- the premise of the relationship is you're good. I'm going to make you great. Yeah. Right. And so I love that idea of, you know, when you're working with a client, hey, you're coming to me, you're a whole and you're an intact whole person, right? You're not broken. Uh-huh. 
you have all the tools in you to take care of yourself and to, to, you know, take care of your life. I'm going to give you and help you develop the tools and the skills to take it to a higher level, uh-huh. right? To perform at a higher level. Yeah. It's very different. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of, it's a different contract, you know, between two people. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. 
definitely interesting. Uh, so <clears throat> let's shift gears and actually let's start talking about those tools. But I, I think I want to frame it um, in a different way by asking uh, two things. One, mm-hmm. you had mentioned that uh, you thought, you know, the goal of accomplishing the goal of getting into Harvard would make you feel all of these things. And this is, I feel like I've had this conversation with multiple people and I'm still not satisfied with the answer I've gotten. So yeah, why do we think that? Like, why do we feel that uh, when this external thing happens, uh, everything is going to be amazing. So, you know, for me, it's been, okay, when I meet a long-term partner or when my book becomes a bestseller or when I get a publishing deal, you know, and it's funny because the publishing deal happened, the high lasted for, you know, uh, a little bit and then life got back to normal pretty soon after that. Yep. And yep, I was like, exactly great. Right. I'm like, now this void that I thought was going to be filled is still empty. And mm-hmm. so why is that? And what are the tools that get us from being good to being great? And there's one quote that I want to ask you about, but I'll ask you after after you answer this question. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what happens is that we have a few annoying features of our mind. And one of them is that, well, uh, often our greatest instincts are just incorrect. So we think that, um, you know, we are going to walk out and if we are hit by a car and become a paraplegic, that our life is going to be awful, right? That that would be terrible. And, and that would make our lives miserable or much less happier than they are now. But that's just wrong. You know, the, the data shows that when we follow people that have been in catastrophic accidents and have become paralyzed, um, they go through a period where their well-being does dip, but then it comes back to pretty much the set point it was before, right? Um, You know, we assume that making, if you know, some distant relative, um, you know, that we didn't know very well passed away and left us with like a hundred million dollars that we would be enormously happy and our life would be forever altered for the better. But that's just not true, right? Our instinct is that that's the case, but it's not true. The data shows that, you know, we, if we inherited that, we would be, there would be a momentary blip, uh, kind of like in a well-being boost, as you, as you said, and then it goes back to kind of the same old, same old. Mm-hmm. And what happens is that we, this is what we call, you know, hedonic adaptation, that our brain is that we adapt to and habituate to both positive and negative stimuli such that the emotional uh, effect of it is is blunted right over time or attenuated and this is actually great <laughs> it's great that we do this because it means the negative things the tough stuff mm-hmm. we also adapt to that so it doesn't you know it's not as bad as we think it's going to be but it means that the positive stuff is not as good as we think it's going to be, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have the same well-being. It doesn't have the powerful well-being boost we think it's going to give us. And this is is not in a line, like it's completely contradicts what we're being told it, living in a capitalist, you know, society, which we do. We're constantly given messages that, you know, these externalities will make you feel great, right? Like they're always selling the lifestyle, mm-hmm. right? So it's con- completely counterintuitive. So we assume like, oh, these external things like getting the book deal and, um, you know, having the 
you know, having the relationship that you see on like what at the Zales commercial or whatever, <laughs> right. you know, K jeweler, yeah. but um, that that's going to make us so much happier. But the truth is that, you know, yes, it does. For about two years, um, we're in like two years, marriage increases our well being, and then we go back to our normal levels, right? That, mm-hmm. That's it. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it, it really serves us in some ways because the, the lows aren't actually as bad as we think they're going to be, but then the highs that we assume are going to make us feel great actually aren't as, you know, great as we think they're going to be. And even more annoying about our mind is that we never learn from this, right? So we go, we like this, this hedonic adaptation that like at every increase of achievement or every increase in our well-being, we adapt to that. It just becomes the new normal, Mm -hmm. right? We don't learn from this. So, you know, despite the fact that, you know, I got into Harvard, well, like that, that became like the new normal and it wasn't that exciting anymore. Right. Yeah. And I would also imagine too, is that like your reference group has probably become more high achieving too. Well, I talk to people like you all day. So my reference group is wildly skewed. <laughs> right. And so we don't judge stuff, um, anything in our life. I mean, we don't human being like our brains don't judge anything on a absolute scale uh-huh. right that's not how we judge stuff we judge ourselves and compare ourselves on a relative scale you based on you know against the most salient reference point Mm-hmm. So, if you have, uh, I mean, this is why they've done these amazing studies where they show that it's always the silver medalist who's most unhappy, mm-hmm. right? It's like, if you look at pictures of people on an Olympic podium, it's really funny. The gold medalist is like beaming ear to ear. And by the way, so is the bronze medalist. Mm-hmm. And the silver medalist is pissed. <laughs> it's so and funny I'll- you say that. Um Sorry, I, I'll, I'll let you get back to it. But I was just yeah, thinking, yeah. I missed Allstate Band by one chair when I was a freshman in high school. Mm-hmm. And that was my worst possible outcome. I was like, I would rather be dead last and had no shot at all than being the first alternate. They of took course. three and I was number four. Yeah, right. And the reason why is because if you were dead last. I didn't have a chance. Mo- <laughs> like, yeah, your most salient reference point was the people around you. Yeah. Like everybody. I still remember the you name know? of like, the guy who beat me, too. To this day. Of course you do. Right. <laughs> exactly right. And um, by the way, I'm sure if they did, you know, if they were looking at L- Olympic medalists and, you know, uh, they would probably the person who's in fourth place is also probably really pissed. Yeah. You know, and really unhappy. But for the bronze medalist, the most salient reference point is I'm, I got on the podium. Like mm-hmm. I almost didn't get on the podium. Right. Yeah. So they're thrilled. They almost were in fourth place and aren't going to get a medal at all. But for the silver medalist, the most salient reference point for the silver medalist is losing the gold. Mm-hmm. Right? So, objectively speaking, the gold medal should be the happiest and the silver medal should be second happiest and then the bronze medal should be the least happy. Right? That's what we should see. But that's not what our brains do. That's not how the human brain works, right? We we have, you know, we compare ourselves to our past, our past performances, and we compare ourselves, we, you know, socially. And the social comparisons are, you know, they're not objective. Mm-hmm. They're not based on an absolute scale. So the higher you, the more you achieve, then the smaller your kind of 
the group that you are of people that have achieved around you, you know, like you're not, you're comparing yourself to those people. So like the, the bar is always being raised. Yeah. So how do we deal with the fact that these reference points are constantly changing without losing our minds? Mm-hmm. Well, this, I mean, I, this is why I, there is a couple tricks you can do. Um, I think, you know, being very deliberate about, um, your experiences and making sure that you do things that are, you know, awesome and fabulous and amazing. And then also deliberately staying in things and places that aren't as nice or going to visit places that aren't as like fancy or highbrow or right. Like you, you give yourself kind of high and low. This is the, you know, the value of maybe going camping and being without for a little bit, right? Like that resets your reference point. Like you want to constantly be doing things that level set, that kind of bring that reference point back down. So it's not this ever increasing, you know, standard. So like the first time, um, I mean, I think traveling on an airplane is such a good example. Mm -hmm. We're all so annoyed about airline travel. It's like, if you ask Lewis and Clark how they would feel about getting on an airplane and traveling like an hour to get something <laughs> right. that took them a year to do, right? You'd be like, that would be the best thing on the world, right? Like there's, there would be nothing better than being able to board an airplane and arriving, you know, in, in, in an hour. Uh-huh. And we were like all disgruntled about being delayed for, you know, a two hour delay. Right. Um, but the problem is, is that w- because uh, we're, we've adapted, right? We've, we have hedonic, you know, the hedonic adaptation, we have adapted to this level of convenience. And so now the two hour delay is extremely irritating. Mm-hmm. So go on a road trip, like travel somewhere by car. <laughs> it might make you appreciate your next trip on the airplane, even if you are delayed for two hours, right? So you want to be actively doing things that are like that are bringing that new normal back down, Mm -hmm. you know, so they, okay. So we've talked about changing, uh, dealing with, you know, uh, reference points in a hedonic adaptation. What are the other Mm -hmm. tools that get people from sort of baseline to great? Oh, from baseline. Well, I mean, I think that truthfully, I mean, uh, what's really happened is that I spent all of this time studying, you know, health, well-being, optimal functioning, human flourishing. And, there's a lot that we know about what high achievers do, right? Like uh, there's a lot of research out there that shows what's predictive of success and what's correlated with success. Like we know a lot of that, but what I became fascinated with, um, and I would see this with my students at Penn and I would see, I see this a lot with my clients and I would, and I saw this, you know, obviously most saliently with myself, but it's one thing to know how to, you know, what one should do. And it's a very different game to get yourself to do it. Mm -hmm. Those are two different issues completely. And I thought that positive psychology had so much to offer in terms of, um, you know, it's, I mean, the descriptive research and um, of understanding like what zero to 10 looks like um, is, I mean, it's, just blown up in the last 20 years. Our knowledge of, um, of sort of, you know, in a, in a nutshell, like what's right with people is so much greater. But that's completely different 
and the science of behavioral change. Like, how do we get, actually get people to do it? I mean, look at dieting, right? And mm-hmm. weight. Everybody pretty much knows how to lose weight. It's not a mystery. Yeah. Right? But the, the success rate with diets, like 3%. Mm-hmm. Right? That is not promising. <laughs> yeah. It's not that there's not a knowledge gap. That's not the issue, right? Mm-hmm. It's a it's a mindset gap because you're the it's not that you know the technical stuff is solved for. We know what you do, right? right? We know what you need to do. The question is like, how do you apply that and actually get the results uh-huh. and get and make lasting change like it's complete it's a totally different game so my interests really shifted because i you know if you go to penn and you teach at penn in the positive psychology program it's like a happiness olympics (laughs) (laughs) i know because a lot of those people have been guests here so (laughs) right like everybody is the well-being is extremely high right everybody is like there's there i might even say that there's some pressure to be like you know, high affect, have high affect. Um, so, but, but I would, I found that a lot of my students over the course of the year would, were having trouble applying what they were learning. Hmm. And that to me, it's completely different issue. It's like the, the whole question of behavioral change. Like that's the, that's a very tricky nut to crack. Do you think we've cracked it? I think there are some, um, you know, Robert Kagan at Harvard, I think, has done some amazing work in his immunity to change model. Um, but I, yeah, I think this is, in, in my opinion, this is the more underdeveloped area, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, I think, and this is one of the reasons why um, I think self-help can be, self-help can be unhelpful sometimes for a lot of people. I think self-help can end up being a little bit like diets going on a, di- you know, the oh. diet world where you have like a 3% success rate because you're, you know, people become self-help junkies and we're reading all these books and not able to actually apply them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that actually ends up leave- leaving people feeling worse. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, how do people start to bridge that gap? I'm guessing that's the question that's on everybody's mind. Yeah, I mean, I think the way that you have to bridge the gap is, and it's it's not you know it's not sexy, it's effortful. But mm. it we know so much more about. I mean, I think that the most interesting research that's coming out is about the power of our mind and all the research on mindset. There's a amazing you know researchers at Stanford, um, uh, Carol Dweck research, Aliyah Crum, who've done incredible stuff uh, looking at the power of our minds. I mean, it, it changes. Um, I mean, it physiologically changes us, our, our minds. Us. I mean, there's all the placebo um, research mm-hmm. as well. But you can apply the same rigor in um, managing, like learning how to manage your mind and changing your mindset as you can in any other thing, right? So if you're, if you're an athlete and you're, uh, you know, training for any sport and you're perfecting your, let's say you're a tennis player and you're perfecting your swing, right? You have to apply the same rigor and practice in learning how to shift and manage your mindset because there's, you're, we're always a thought away from changing our life. Like the thing that holds us back is, you know, we have, 
we have a mindset, there's a competing commitment, right? That you're, 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 there's some kind of battle going on in your mind where you, you want to make this change. You earnestly want to do it yet. Can't seem to get yourself to apply it, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, often my clients would describe this as like, you know, feeling like they're living in groundhog's day. Yeah. Like, how am I, how am I here? Right. Like their, their new year's resolutions are laminated. It's the same thing. Every, <laughs> the same thing every year, right? And the what what actually you know, lasting behavioral change is always an expression of a mindset change. You have to believe something different to do something different, mm-hmm. right? And I think often we try to solve the problem by just changing the action, changing the behavior, but that requires way too much willpower for us. And, you know, willpower is great in short, in the short term, but it's not a lasting solution in the, on the, in the long term. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think about, you know, how I developed the habit of a writer. And I think just deep down, I was like, I had the belief that, okay, this will lead to something good. Uh, because I already knew that, you know, just, you know, the, ha- the fact that I'd semi developed the habit had already led, you know, quite far. Absolutely. Like, and, and I think this is what people really forget is, you know, we, we have this whole world of positive affirmations, but often those positive affirmations are too far away from us, right? Yeah. So, we, it's like going from, you know, I hate my body to I love my body or from like, I'm a failure to I'm a success, whatever, right? Like, it's way too far. Yeah. And so, what ends up happening is you don't you, – you, that, you know, the affirmation or like the new thought, you don't believe it. Mm-hmm. So you're saying it to yourself, but there's a voice in the back of your head that's like, yeah, well, that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, uh, uh, yeah, right. And so it ends up backfiring because it, all it's really doing is it's reinforcing your, your, you know, the old mindset, like the existing mindset, which is I'm a failure. Yeah. Definitely. So what I, I think, you know, what hap- what you need to do is find more neutral thoughts that can lead you to bridging the gap between like the, you know, the operating system that you're in now and the operating system that you want to have, which is I'm a success, mm-hmm. but you've got to, you've got to traverse that kind of what I call the river of doubt. Wow. Um, okay. So a couple other questions come from this. Uh, this is a quote that I saw on your website. I was reading your about page and this caught my attention uh, immediately. You said it's malpractice for a therapist to see you for 15 years without moving past the same place you started in. If your friends and family don't notice a change in you, I'm not doing my job. And yet, yeah, this is our status quo in society is years and years and years of people in therapy. Uh, why is, why is that? And you know, why do we, why do we find that it takes so long to, to get a change? I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I had a, a breakup that made a mess of my head and I felt like literally every week I would go to the therapist's office. I'm like, why the hell is this taking so long? Like I should be over this. This happened a month and a half ago and it took six months. Yeah. So why is that? Like, why is this our status quo? I think that we take our thoughts way too seriously. I mean, we have, I, I, I stand by that hundred percent. Like I, I just think that we 
have this idea that we're supposed to be excavating every single past hurt and injury and trauma in our life and that this is somehow going to explain like how we've become who we are and how we've you know sab- why we continue to sabotage ourselves and all that and i do think you know yes it's interesting and it's important to sort of understand the biography of our belief, current belief system. Like, how did we get here? How did we develop these beliefs? It doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? Yeah. We have cultural um, messages and then messages from our family of origin. Like, that's all important. But it's important to understand, you know, how you develop them. But that's more of a theoretical exercise because the, what, where the rubber meets the road is, oh, I have this current belief system. Like you know, whatever that may be that's holding you back. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's just pick, you know, the most common one <laughs> at the end of the thread. It's always some not enoughness, right? Not smart enough, not pretty enough, not, you know, good enough, um, not funny enough, not clever enough. I mean, you name it, like it's always some version of not enoughness that's mm-hmm. at, for, for most people, that's like at the core, right? And unless you're dealing with that belief, then that's like, you have to deal with, you have to root those beliefs out, right? Like, that's what you're working. You got to work at that level. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's always a reason why we developed those beliefs. But, you know, I think when we come to an understanding that this is like a pretty universal human experience, I mean, this is the universal human experience, right? That we, um, we all struggle with these, with our, our irrational minds. You know, we're all screwed up, fallible, irrational creatures. And our thinking um, pretends to be true. But very often our thinking is completely baseless and it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Right? So we have to be get, become really good at questioning our, our thoughts. And I think what happens in therapy is sometimes we end up massaging our thoughts. Mm. Like, you know, like we dig deeper into them as if we, we like, we reify them and get, and make them more important than they actually are. It's like, we have total freedom to believe whatever we want about ourselves. Yeah. We can, like we can genuinely believe whatever we want about our identity, who we are, what we stand for. You know, I mean, we can, there's no rules. And in the, the, like the, the buffet, the smorgasbord of, of thoughts in front of us, very often we pick up the worst ones and we hold on to them with, you know, we hold on to them dearly. And, but it, when you actually look at it that way, like we have this incredible freedom, mm. right? It's, it's almost like it's, it's our brain like can't actually compute that we have this kind of freedom. Uh-huh. Uh, so two questions for you, uh, that I want to finish with, uh, you mentioned earlier that you're a parent and as a parent and uh, developmental psychologist, what impact has, uh, the work that you do had on the way that you're raising your kids? Um, mm-hmm. 
And, you know, I, I, like the reason I ask this is because I'm under the impression that if I had parents who are completely well-educated and super conscious about this stuff, I would have turned out as a normal, fully functional, like high achieving, <laughs> you know, off the charts human being. Um, right. And you being in the position that you are and being a parent, I'm really interested in what you have to say about this and what advice do you have to parents who are listening? <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, I, I couldn't go into, I mean... For a brief second, I thought maybe I would work with parents on working with them, you know, consulting them on parenting and developmental psychology. And I, no way, <laughs> no way, because I am a parent and that's just way too much. It's like, you know, too much. So if you're talking about judging yourself, like I, the, my comparison group was best practices. That's like, a, that's deadly. So I wasn't, I can't do that. Yeah. Um because you know, you, in the we're parenting in real time, and that means we all make mistakes. And, and you're dealing with kids with different temperaments and different personalities. And what works with one child is the you know the opposite of what works for the other one. So, I mean, I think ultimately what we're hoping to create is psychological flexibility, um, and and psychological fitness. And that means that you can pick yourself up from what goes wrong and learn something from it and move on. Mm -hmm. Right. Because there is no perfect, it just doesn't exist. There's no perfect parenting. There's no perfect um, living. There's no perfect living of life. It doesn't exist. And, um, and I, and I think that sometimes like we professionalize parenting. I mean, I think this has occurred in like the last 25 years. We've sort of professionalized parenting, which leads to this false assumption that you can somehow be the perfect parent and you uh -huh. can do this perfectly. Like, that's crazy. No. And all of the, all of the hurt, all of the trauma, all of the mistakes, like all of that has just enriched my life. If has made me um, have more empathy, has, has like made me see something in a deeper, more full way. It hasn't been easy. It's not, you know, certainly, um, you know, life is difficult for sure. And, and the full spectrum of emotion is what we sign up for as human beings, right? Like that's, that's what we, you know, on the other side of love is loss. Like you can't have one without the other. So, I, I think that it's it's a mistake to not allow ourselves to just have a human experience, which means we screw up all the time. But what we want to have is develop greater, you know, as I said, like greater um, psychological flexibility and fitness so that you're able to kind of recover from those setbacks or recover from those experiences more quickly mm -hmm. and gain something from them more quickly. Wow. Right. And not, and not rather than ruminating um, in them and sort of feeling like, and, and which, you know, makes us feel. And when we're feeling bad, normally, you know, that feeling bad leads, <laughs> leads to a lot of dysfunctional behavior. No doubt. All right. Two last questions. Uh, yeah. This is, something that I've been asking a lot of people because it is uh, likely going to be the subject of my next book um, and also was uh, the subject of an article that I wrote recently for those of you who haven't checked it out. What do you think we should have learned in school but never did? Oh my gosh. I mean, unequivocally, how to manage your mind. I mean, it is it is blows my mind that we are taught 
arcane things that we will never use. And the one thing that will change your life is understanding how to shift your mindset. We do not address this, right? It's, it's, it makes no sense to me at all. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's the one thing that we, we that everybody should be pulled aside in high school and said, okay, let me just share with you how you actually can change your mindset and you can change a thought that doesn't serve you very well and isn't getting you very good results. And we can teach you how to shift the mindset. Like that's profound. I mean, especially when you look at Angela Duckworth's research on, you know, self-discipline outperforms IQ, in terms of high school achievement. Um, and, and what is self-discipline? It's like managing your mind, mm-hmm. right? So being able to direct your brain to serve you is an essential skill that we don't learn. And I think it's a shame. Wow. Well, this has been amazing. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews, the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh my gosh. What do I think it is that makes someone unmistakable? I think it's just that, that same thing, that that's ability to sort of pick yourself up no matter what, right? Like no matter what's happened, no matter how public the face plant to be able to pick yourself up. That to me is the most remarkable human quality. Awesome. Well, I think that makes a a really fitting end to what has been a very interesting and riveting conversation. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Um, On my website, which is Dr. Sasha Hines, so D-R-S-A-S-H-A-H-E-I-N-Z. And on uh, Instagram, same handle at Dr. Sasha Hines. Yeah. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration 
into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.